the severity of his addiction was so great. But at the time, even that small amount, which is really nothing in the whole scheme of things, was so shocking to my system that I really went into a sort of um, trauma, I guess. I couldn't stay at work at night. I started panicking, thinking, what is he doing? I, I didn't know. And I just started feeling angry and just had all those things that are basically so from thoughts, betrayal. The thoughts of unknown were like hot. They were. What's up, everybody? This is Matt here with the Husband-in-Law Podcast. This is where we share our stories of love, ex-love, marriage, ex-marriage, divorce, ex-divorce, and coming out of a closet that needed to be opened, and so much more. This podcast is for those who are looking to up their relationship game by understanding first yourself, and then others, like your wife, your husband, and your wife's ex-husband, on a whole new level. Welcome to the Husband-in-Law Podcast. Let's get this party started. All right, you guys, we are super excited today because we have a guest with us and her name is Roxanne. And I don't even know what your official last new last name is. It's, yeah, official. It's still Roxanne Kennedy, but then okay. I've added Granada. Okay, because I always just think of you as Roxanne Kennedy. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I kept it, but we just added on. So the awesome thing about Roxanne is, well, there's lots of awesome things, but in this situation is that I knew Roxanne years ago, like seven, eight years ago. Yeah, 2012. It's oh the my gosh. Of 2012 is when I met you. That's so crazy. Roxanne actually knows dates. So that's awesome too. <laughs> the dates, years. Oh, the- <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't know what you're saying. Yes. Steve and I always forget what year things yeah. happened. It always so. takes us forever to figure out when something was when we're recording. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes that's true. But fe- that February 2012 was the beginning of my. That's life. ingrained in you. Yes. And so okay. that's why I know that date because you were the first face I saw when I walked into my first meeting. Awesome. I know. So we're going to get into that, how Roxanne and I first met and what her story is. And it's it's not the same as ours, but it definitely is one that needs to be shared and that people can relate to and heal from. We know there's lots of people in a similar situation. So, and I believe that's part of your drive to share this. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And she has a book called Cutting Ties. And so if you listen to this and you relate and you want to hear more, go check out her book. And where can they get that? They can get it on Amazon. Perfect. Yep. Awesome. Nice, easy way to find that. And then you're also on social media under Cutting Ties, correct? Yes. Facebook and Instagram. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you can find her there. Yes. Right. Cool. She's been on several other podcasts. You can go listen to You can eat her up all you want. <laughs> <laughs> so Jessica and Steve know Roxanne. I don't. Right. So I just want to get to know you a little bit. Okay. Like, where are you from? Well, I grew up in California, the Bay Area, and then lived 20 years in Idaho before. So when somebody says the Bay Area, that, mm-hmm. that's really vague to me. Like yeah. there's a lot of little cities right. in the Bay Area. Right. What city? Pleasanton. Okay. I don't know where that's Right. At. Exactly. Sounds very, so, sounds very pleasant. Yes. Yeah. It, it was very nice. It's outside of Walnut Creek. Do you know that place? Because yep. a lot of yep. people know Walnut Creek more so than Pleasanton. But Okay. Yeah. So 20 years in Idaho after that. And then I lived five years in St. George and then just barely moved here to Utah or St. George's, Utah, I guess. It kind of feels more yeah. like Arizona. And we should yeah, establish the three of us, Steve, Matt, Jessica, we are in Utah in Roxanne's home yes. recording this. Yeah. So thank you for having us in your home. Yeah. I'm glad you guys are here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, when did you leave the Bay Area? Uh, when I went to college. Okay. Where'd so you go to college? At Rick's College, BYU, Idaho, <laughs> for those of the younger generation. Okay. Yeah. And uh, then I went to cosmetology school in Provo after that. And that's where I met my first husband. 
Okay. So we got married and moved to Boise and lived there for all those years. So you met Steve and Jessica in Mm -hmm. Boise. I did. Yep. In Boise. I met them at my very first 12-step program. I had found out that my husband was struggling with pornography addiction. And when I went in to talk to my church leader, he sent us to 12-step. How long had you lived in Boise when you met? Well, let's see. So I moved to Boise in 96 and this was 2012. Okay. So you'd lived in Boise for quite some time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. How long had you guys been married at that point? 17 years. 17 years. And did you know, like, how long did you know about it before you came to group? I, well, I found it six months into marriage. So I knew really early on, and that was kind of the beginning of finding it over the years and Mm -hmm. not really knowing what to do about it or that it was a problem. What did you find? Oh, I came home from work and the TV was stuck between stations. We had the old turn knob TV and (laughs) it was stuck in between stations on a fuzzy picture of pornography. Okay. So that was my first exposure. Well, I had seen some magazines when I was like 12, but other than that, I didn't grow up in a home with it at all. My dad didn't struggle with it. So I just had no idea that it was an issue for so many. So stuck between, I guess I'm trying to cut. How that works. Capture this. So Uh it's like an antenna TV, right? And you're turning the knobs to the station, but in between each channel, there's fuzzy white, the Mm -hmm. steps all like that. Like radio station. Yep. Like that. And somehow, you know, because there's always a way to, for someone to put that stuff right on. And at that point it was TV, no internet at that point. So. So it was a fuzzy picture of porn. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that was my first experience. So what did, what did you do with that information? Uh, that, it was interesting because as the years went by, I found so much more and the severity of his addiction was so great. But at the time, even that small amount, which is really nothing in the whole scheme of things, was so shocking to my system that I really went into a sort of um, trauma, I guess. I couldn't stay at work at night. I started panicking, thinking, what is he doing? I, I didn't know. And I just started feeling angry and just had all those things that are basically so thoughts, from betrayal. The thoughts of unknown were like haunting. They were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you talk to your husband about it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So right when I found it, he came home, talked to him. We agreed to go see our church leader and he was amazing. He talked about his struggle with pornography. He talked about what he did in his life, which I thought was amazing, especially now looking back going how brave of him in That's a true. time period where that wasn't really talked about. You know, it's pretty amazing. So he gave us a few things, but still nothing as far as how you overcome or what you do. It was more just trying to be a better person. And that was what he gave us at the time. That's all we knew. So we kind of were like, okay, let's do that. But for me, that didn't ease my fears or make me feel like I could trust him. So how many years later did you say you were referred to a 12-step program? So that was, uh, so this would have been in 94 that I first found it. Mm -hmm. And this is 2012 when I finally was. So over the years, more and more, I would find different things more and more. And uh, anyway, it was 2012 when I found a big enough amount of, I guess, evidence that felt, okay, this is not just a choice. This isn't a decision he's choosing to do. This is an actual problem. And I was just hoping that someone would give me some sort of, clue of what I can do. And that I was really so glad when he said, go to 12 step and he committed us to four years. So I guess the question is how much evidence do you need? 
Right. Well, you don't really probably need very much. But at that age, I was 22 years old at the beginning and thinking, I just chose this person. I love this person. I was going to be in this, you know, do or die. I would rather die than get out of this. And so I just kept fighting for it over and over and over and didn't matter how much I found. I didn't have, hadn't given myself permission or learned it from anybody that it was okay to leave. Nobody told me to stay, but in my own self, I just didn't have that in me to say, I'm going to end this relationship. Got it. You mentioned February 2012. Mm -hmm. Why is that a significant date for you? That's when I found everything where we went, ended up going to our church leader and he sent us to 12 step. So that was like, okay, finally, I'm not fighting this alone. And Mm -hmm. maybe there will be some answer. Maybe there'll be something that can fix this. And I didn't know how it looked or what it was, but I knew I was going to walk into that meeting. I I didn't want to walk into that meeting. That was like the scariest. I know Jessica has gone to 12 step. Steve's gone to 12 step, but I don't know if you've ever gone. So it's one of those things that I don't know how you guys felt, but it was the scariest thing to walk into that first meeting. I seriously, my heart was racing and I was standing at that door going, there's no way I'm not going in. Now, is this a meeting that you're walking in with your companion? So or is this... there's, it's, there's two separate meetings. One is for those struggling with addiction and the other is for family members of addicts. And so I was walking into the family members of addicts. Okay. And he was walking into the other one. Jessica, were you there at this point in February mm-hmm. 2012? Uh-huh. I was there that first meeting. Yeah. She was there the first meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And I walked in and I'm sitting there and and you're the facilitator and, and you're talking and you're sharing your experiences and I'm looking at you and I'm like, okay, you were light. You were talking like hopeful. There was love. You were also emotional. You were sharing some hard things. So there, all of it was there, but it was the first time that I was like, okay, I want to be her. (laughs) <laughs> I, I felt so much hope, like for the first time that there was actually hope and that I could do this. And that was from you. And that's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I didn't know that part of the story. Yeah. It's interesting because I remember you coming and I've seen a lot of women come through that program because I'd been going for a few years at this point, not necessarily to that exact group, but I'd gone to several and you see so many women, and I'm sure you experience this too, who come for one or two meetings and then you never see them again. Mm-hmm. And I know when there's somebody, you can tell when there's somebody there that it connects with and that they see that hope, that glimmer of hope, whether it's that they see a glimmer of hope that, yes, I can continue through, like my husband and I will figure this out or I can figure this out with this loved one, or where they start to see, I need to create the boundaries for myself. Right. Like it's okay for me to create those boundaries for myself. Like it is just as important. And I, yeah. Yeah. And those awesome. first meetings, I didn't even know what boundaries were. And yep. so even learning that in counseling, I had, I was, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't seem nice or friendly, but going to those meetings, hearing from people who were already choosing into healing was that beginning. And going back a bit, we've talked about, I don't know how many episodes ago, the, this meeting that we went to in Colorado Springs. I don't think we won't mention the one we've gone to in Boise, which would be this one. Yeah. But this was a church-based program where they had taken the 12 steps of AA, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that didn't sound right for some reason. But they've taken those 12 steps and applied them to other addictions. And in this case, pornography addiction is what this group was based on. And um, so for someone who's wondering what these meetings are, it's the one we mentioned that Jessica and I were really involved in in Colorado Springs. And subsequently, this same version of that in Boise. Yeah. 
And I'm trying to think of where we were at in February 2012, Jessica, you and I. At this point, we were, we had gone our separate ways, right? We had yeah. ended things officially. We haven't gotten this far in our story yet in our, <laughs> in our regular sequence in our podcast. So we're jumping ahead here a bit. But we um, had gone our separate ways, but you weren't yet with Matt, right? No. Mm-mm. And I don't even know, I'm trying to think, what year did we decide we got divorced? <laughs> <laughs> it was eight years ago. So that was so you weren't back in Boise yet either. Oh, so this so February? No, but you must have been. <laughs> I've met him. I've yeah, met him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he came back. I think he came back a couple weeks after that. I guess I'm trying to decide. So. Was I still in? Was I in the other room during this time? You, you were. I really should know this. Were, and you did know my ex husband. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I knew he that. Like you, I yeah. knew you okay. had met. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Unlike Roxanne here, we're not as great at remembering <laughs> where we were at a certain time. a lot time longer or... than I was in yeah. lives of, yeah, I don't know, moved on and I Okay. Yeah. I don't know. So okay. I'm in the other room with, with your husband, Roxanne, uh-huh. talking about our struggles with pornography. Exactly. While you two are talking about your struggles with your husbands who struggle with pornography. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And hopefully more so. I think what you guys talked about in that meeting was your struggle with how it affected yourselves and your, yeah. you know, less. Trying to regain yourself back. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I love that you talked about choosing to heal or like mm-hmm. opting into that because it really is a, a choice. choice we make. I just had a conversation with somebody this week about, well, listen, if you're choosing to stay, then you have to figure out how to heal yourself. If you choose to leave, that looks different. Those are two different types of healing, but you need you to, to figure out which one you're opting into. Right. And I think, yeah. Otherwise, it's just a spiral of death. If you're, yes. if you're in something and you're not going to choose into it, then it's just continually takes you down and it's hard to get up in the morning and it's just hard to function at all. Spiral of death. I know. It is is so true. It is so true (laughs) because there's nothing you can do about it and you just keep Mm -mm. circling. Yeah. That's awesome. So So, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm trying to think of how to word this question right, but Jessica, you have talked about women who come to this group and you mentioned it just now, those who come once or twice and quit coming Mm -hmm. and those who come and it connects with them and they continue to come. And you've talked about, I guess, what, what is the difference between those two types of women? What was the difference? Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All, right. all right. All right. What I've noticed is it's just about timing mm-hmm. and being ready to do the work. I could have, in my situation, I found so many things along the way between 94 and 2012, but I wasn't ready to do the work. It was like when it finally hit, go ahead. I love how you say the work because it does require work. Yeah. It's not just you show up to these meetings. From what I understand of these meetings, like you have to be ready to do the work. You can't just show up and expect somebody to do the work for you and all of the answers to be given to you at these meetings. You have to actually do the work. Right. And what happens is when you first, at least as a spouse, when you first go into those meetings, you think you're going to learn how to save and support your partner. You don't realize you're going for you to save yourself. (laughs) You have no idea. And so then when these women come to the meeting and they find, oh, wait a second, I have to heal me. I have Mm. to save me. I have to actually change my belief system and the way I think about things and do this. And sometimes you're just not ready. How quickly in that meeting did you have that aha moment of, oh, this is about me? Uh, Well, not the first one. That's for sure. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure when. Probably a little while. It probably took a little while to realize how much I was not functioning in 
a normal capacity. I was living in a fog. I was living, driving my car, not realizing how I got from one place to another. You realize like you're just living in this, this state of, you're just so much sadness and pain. Sounds very detached. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. You're dissociative from it. So from this time, this first support meeting until the time you actually divorced your husband, how long was that? I know it's yep. it was years. It was so in 2014, so April of 2014, he I basically put up the boundary that he needed rehab or he needed to get out that it was time and he ended up choosing rehab. So he went to 90-day rehab and I picked him up in the summer of 14 and gave him a year to choose recovery. And so we were separated by that January and then divorced in that August. So August of 2015. So about three years. Yeah. What does rehab look like for someone in that scenario? Because this is new to me. Yeah. I, I'm very familiar with the 12-step program. I don't know a thing about rehab for someone who is addicted to pornography. So it's run the same way as a drug rehab center. You are there for 90 days. You have no phone. You have no access to anything. You are every moment of your time is dictated you have to share, you have to tell them when you're going to the bathroom, you have your work hours, you have your hikes, your counseling multiple times a week, your 12 step meetings. I think they, I can't remember how many they went to, maybe five a week, 12 step meetings. And that's basically, they're just basically, you detox basically from it first. And then you start learning the tools uh, that you need to be able to stay clean and sober. And then once you can stay sober, they're teaching you how to live in recovery, what that looks like, honesty and accountability, just things like that. There's a list yeah. of things like that. So in my case, he came home from rehab and he was sober, but, and even by January when we separated, he was sober, but he wasn't living a recovery lifestyle. So there was not- What does that look like? What's that means no lifestyle? honest, there was still so mm. much deception, so much manipulation. He was back and forth on each side. If you look at the list of living in recovery and living in addiction, he was popping back and forth from side to side. And so that doesn't build trust. And that still makes me live in a state of fear and always- Questioning. Questioning. You're always in the state of discernment. And that's the thing that I think is one of the most damaging things about addiction, and I'm going to say specifically pornography addiction, is that the lack of trust that comes into it. That's like something that Steve and I talked about a lot when we were married was just, I'm okay knowing this, mm -hmm. but I need you to tell me what's going on. So I'm not creating these ideas in my head of, that aren't true, that aren't true about what you're doing. I just want to know what you're doing so I can process it and set my boundaries, know what it looks like for me. Mm -hmm. And for you, so I can understand where you're at. Right. And that's something... So that you can be in a healthy state of mind. And, yeah, yeah. And were okay. you able to do that? It took me a very long time to yeah. really understand that coming clean and being completely open and honest with her mm -hmm. about whatever it is I had been up to yeah. was less damaging than keeping it from her. Right. Because she'll find out eventually because the truth always comes out in some yeah. form, and, in some and, way. And in between that time frame, mm -hmm. she will... You know, Jessica, you could tell when something wasn't yeah, right. Yeah, you can and, tell. Mm -hmm. And it ate at you. And yeah. it put distance between us. Mm -hmm. And then I, it ate at me because I knew it was bothering you. And But yeah, it was, it sure was definitely a learning lesson for me to realize that. Just be open and honest. She right? can handle the truth. Mm -hmm. But she can't or isn't willing to handle the lack of truth. Yeah, right. Okay, so one of the things also that I was wanting to ask in that is, so was there a point that you started to feel that light 
like when you were still married to your first husband that you started feeling the light come back? Because there is a point where it's like you've lost who you are. Right. And I think you were at that point when you started coming to group. Yeah. And sure. was there a point that you found that before you were divorced? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because of all the work. I, I yeah. did counseling every week and then two 12-step meetings a week and built my support system and had my girlfriends that I talked to about it all and and started realizing once I started setting boundaries, that's when I could start, I guess, feeling okay. And the light was coming back in because I realized, oh, wait a second, none of this stuff is mine to own. This is his stuff. And all I can do is control me. And this stuff is not okay for me. So it has nothing to do with love. You know, I yeah. loved him so much, but can't can't stay if somebody else isn't going to do their part, keep those boundaries. That's awesome. Yeah. So how do you get to a point that you are willing to work on yourself mm-hmm. to deal with the problem that is not of your That is making? someone else's. I guess. Yeah. I mean, did you ask yourself that question of why do I have to be here? Why do I have to do the work when For sure. he's the one with the problem? For sure. And then it was explained to me basically in some sort of terms as far as an accident is concerned. So you're in an accident, you get hit by a truck, and now you are you have a cast and you have to have physical therapy and you have to have all these things. The person who hit you leaves. Like they never you never see them again and you have a year or two or mm-hmm. more of healing and repairing your own self before you feel whole again. Due to an accident that was not your fault. That was not your fault. Mm-hmm. And so at first I thought he needs to fix me. He did this. He needs to fix me. But you can't have the person who is the one stabbing you also picking you up because you don't even trust that person. And so they can't fix you. You have to do it. And the driver who broadsided you is not going to be the one to no. heal you. Mm-mm. Right. So there's accident. a lot of work, even mm. even though it's not from An you. Interesting comparison. I like that. Yeah. I love this because this is so what I believe in. And people ask me all the time, well, how are you able to process this? How are you okay? And that's what it comes down to is I was able to recognize my boundaries pretty early on mm-hmm. in how I could interact and take care of myself while still showing up for Steve. Mm-hmm. But I've had people say to me, well, it was easier for you because your husband was gay. And so you were able to, he was able to express things and support you and be emotional and connect with you. And I'm like, no, that's not what it was. There's no comparison to anybody's story or anybody's no. pain or anybody's trauma. Everybody's is different, for sure. yet very hard on them because it's their part of their journey. Yes. Yeah. But there are similar ways to heal in that like- oh, in all of them. Yes, mm-hmm. that you take that and you take care of you and heal you. And so I always think that's interesting. I'm like, your healing process can look very similar to mine. I mean, it's different- the story or the details yes. are different, but, but healing is a lot the same no matter what we're going through. I love that. Yeah. Thanks so, for backing me up. Yeah. <laughs> how, does, how does someone get to that point? And I want, I want to broaden this to not just the wife of someone who's right. addicted to pornography, but mm-hmm. someone who has been injured by someone else's actions in whatever kind of relationship. How does that person get to a point where they own the fact that I need to do some work on myself to recover from this. What what does it take to get to that point to be able to say, I can't change this other person, but I can change me? So for me, that spin of death, the spiral of death that was in my insides, I couldn't live with that. I hated that feeling of anxiety that was causing so much stress. It felt like I wanted to jump out of my skin. And so for me, 
that's what it took for a lot of people. It takes to where the pain of not working through it is worse than mm. finally deciding to work through it. Because what people are afraid of is going through it. You have to actually look at all the painful things. You have to feel all the things and all the stuff that comes up about that, you know, I'm not enough and I'm this and I'm that. And clearly this is why. So all the shame comes up and it's not an easy place. It sometimes gets worse before it gets better. But going through the hard stuff, you have to actually go through it. Otherwise, you're just kind of stuck in it or just right behind it. And it's always looming. Right. But if you go through it, then you're on the other side and then you have freedom. So what are some of the things that you had to work through? You mentioned one just now, which was, I am not enough. Mm-hmm. That's a very damaging mindset to have. Right. So that's something you had to work through. What other things do I have to work did through? you have to work through? Uh, I had perfectionism things. I grew up that way. I didn't know that I did. I thought I was okay with failing, but I wasn't. And so there was something about failing. There was something about how did I not know? How did I choose into this? And then how was I not able to save it? So I took on the role of saving me, saving him, saving our family. And if I can't do that, then who am I or what am I? Yep. So that's another one. Right. <laughs> and that's hard stuff to work through. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah you have to it's look at yourself real. and you're like, oh my gosh, I do have issues. I have control issues, which I didn't know I had. Yeah. But that's a form of control, trying to manage someone else's experiences or journey. Yeah. So letting that go is, again, boundaries for myself. Letting it go freed me up to see clear and go Again, not own someone else's stuff and just be able to see my own, see yeah. more clear. Focus on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you, after your divorce, mm-hmm. you were single for- A couple years. A couple years. Mm-hmm. And then you got remarried. I did. So I had decided not to date for, I think it was about 13 months or so mm-hmm. after my divorce. I really was like, for me, and everybody's different, but for me, I felt like I might go into something looking for some someone to fill up the void that yeah. I have. And I really felt strongly, God's my higher power, and I felt strongly with him that I needed to really turn to him and let him fill that up instead of the world because yeah. I could see myself just, I don't know, self-destructing by doing that. So I decided to do that. And so I didn't date for that full year. And then I started dating and then I did meet somebody few months later and I married him the next summer and it was exactly what I was supposed to do. It just didn't, we just didn't stay married. We were married for a year, super nice person. So that was all good. What happened for me was we were not on the same page in choosing healing and recovery the way it looked. We had different ideas of how to get through the past. And what I found was when, when you're not doing your work, And just, and not necessarily that he wasn't just in a way that felt comfortable to me. Mm -hmm. Um, You are looking at people with the lens of your past. So it's like you have glasses on and you're seeing from the past. And so you can't see a person clear. And so my experience was that he couldn't see me clear. He saw me as his past and none of those things were actually true about me. And so even though we went to counseling and all of those things that we, we did all the work, it was a lot for him to take in at that time to need to do that. So we left on good terms, but just in a sense that it was just too soon 
and yeah. he needed some more time. And so on my end, for me, it felt like he was exactly- It felt like it was too soon for him to be married? Yeah, or, or at, least, at least it showed him where his trauma from past was still present. Okay, so he, yes. has, he still had a lot of work to get through. Right. And that would have been okay. Yeah. It, you know, but again, you have to choose into the work and you have to choose it every day. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and you're talking about, in this case, in your mm-hmm. second marriage, healing from his completely different. Trauma. Yeah. His, yeah. 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 And his was a whole different set His of... was a whole different thing, but the work was the same as what was interesting. Yeah. The trauma and the pain and how he, what he took from his past relationship was a lot the same things that I'd had from mine, even though his was not addiction related. And he didn't struggle with addiction either. So yeah. it was interesting. And my my belief I had before marrying him was he's not an addict, therefore all of this is okay. Yeah. And so what I learned was, wow, it's not about that. It doesn't matter if someone's an addict or not. It doesn't matter what they're struggling with. It's a matter of if they're willing to work on it and do the work and want to progress in life. Not even about perfection, yeah. just about doing the work. Yeah. Right. Well, and I love what you said that it was something that was supposed to happen because you learned and grew from that. And I think that's where some of us get so hung up is that, oh my gosh, I got into second marriage and now I'm I'm leaving the second marriage or whatever. That yeah, they look at as a failure. But I feel like genuinely, sometimes we're led to do these things because we do learn and grow from them. And there is so much that's important. Yeah, I needed. There was a certain piece of my healing that I needed Mm -hmm. of that my heart was broken from before. And I knew even before marrying him that I was going to get that piece. Yeah. And so, and I did. On our honeymoon, I got that piece. It was a piece of trauma that had come up and his response was so different from my first husband's response, being an addict and him not being one that it just immediately, it was like that last piece I needed of my healing. And so, and then from there, it just sort of went downhill because of trauma, but at that moment. And so over the year, I really felt like there was a bridge to finding my person. So he was the bridge for me. He was the bridge in my healing that there was so much trauma before going from all of that to what I experience now with my new husband is uh, exactly what I want, but I needed that bridge in between. And to realize that it's just about choosing and looking for someone who is willing to do the work. Yes. So I totally understand that. Like our, Matt and I, the beginning of our marriage was rough and it was a lot of that. Like you're trying to figure things out and trying how to figure out how to take those lenses off of seeing your new relationship, exactly like you said, through the lens of your past relationship. And there was stuff both of us had to work out on sides of that, but ours was actually compatible, I think, where we were able to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And work through it. I was able to figure out like, I can't compare this woman to any past women in my life. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. She's not the same at all. No. Right. No. Yeah. Which is and I amazing. think there's some fear in that of like, can I let down this lens that, you Protects know, has, you, kind yeah, of. that was protecting me because from this past trauma to let somebody in fully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I thought of this when Roxanne, when you were talking about you view your new partner through the lenses kind of that you inherited with your previous partner. I don't know right. how you said that, but mm-hmm. implying that it's it's easy and natural to compare your partner with who you've been with in the past and what experiences you associate with them. And mm-hmm. Matt and Jessica, I was thinking of, you know, we've talked about a few of them in our podcast recordings of ways that you two interacted with each other and because of prior experiences. Jessica, yes. ways that you treated Matt or expectations you had of Matt 
because of experiences you'd had with me. Yeah. And Matt, uh, experience that, you know, the way you interacted with Jessica because of experiences you had with Anne. Yep. And, and it was unfair to Jessica for me to make that judgment and that comparison. Of course, but you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, you have to learn it. And, and so you have to do the work. Oh, yes. and it's painful. That. And yeah. it's there's a lot of tears and emotion. But then as you talk through it and work through it, then there's so much love in the end. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Every time with every conversation. Oh, for sure. So yeah. it's interesting to me that through the course of our conversation here, the work, as we keep referring to it, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, these 12 steps or really any steps Counting, of, healing, of working mm-hmm. towards mm-hmm. healing and that they they apply to... What kind of people do these apply to? Everybody. Not everybody. Yeah. Everyone has some sort of is there ever an healing end? to be done. Yeah, exactly. Is there ever an end of healing? Oh, no. I don't no. think so. <laughs> I just think it gets easier and better and easier to surrender and let go. And different... different wounds. And and you're not so maybe clenched fists on some of them. Once you let go and you start learning, new things pop up. But you're like, oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, well, we'll work on this. Okay, we kind of... I didn't like his answer and you kind of get angry a little bit, but then you're like, okay, doesn't matter. We'll just talk about it. And then it's okay. Yeah. I think you start to realize so much more quickly that you opt into that healing a lot faster because you know you're going to get out of like to the end, the other side a lot faster. That light's going to come back. Especially when you see the difference of who you're with. It's like, you know that they're your person. Yeah. And so knowing fully that they're your person, it's like, there's not a risk. It's not a an all or nothing type of a feel when two people are choosing in. Yep. That's awesome. So how long between your second marriage and your third? So uh, that one ended August of uh, a year and a half ago, I guess. And I started dating this person in the February after. And it was interesting because only being married a year and realizing only a few weeks after we got married that he had kind of chose not to invest in it. It didn't feel like a divorce, even though it is. It felt yeah. more like a breakup. It felt like a mm-hmm. year of trying to hold my boundaries, all the tools I had learned. I was everything. I even reread my book because I was going to start, I was going to get it out. And I reread it. I'm like, wow, this is the same situation I was in before, even though it's not addiction related. Yep. So my things, the things I was thinking and feeling and going through were the exact same. So I could use my own book even to help me remember what kind of boundaries to hold, uh, not taking it on. Loving them, having empathy through their journey, but not needing to stay either. That's awesome. And so that ended. And then, um, so this new person though, I dated him 27 years ago in college. I love this story. Yes, I know. Isn't that awesome? At Rick's or Cosmetology? Uh, This was, yeah, when I was at Cosmetology School, he wasn't there, but we were at uh, BYU or he was at BYU and I lived on BYU housing. So we just lived right across the, just right across the thing from each other, the grass. And um, we dated We dated back in 92. So the grass is greener. Sometimes it is, actually. <laughs> Sometimes it is, right? So, yeah, so we got back in contact uh, in February. And uh, that was from his roommate, who I'm still friends with. And he just said, he called him and he's like, hey, if I send you a book, my book had come out in October. And he said, if I send you a book, would you read it to help you with your healing? And he's like, yeah. And so he actually sent him to my website and he saw that it was me and he's like, what? It's her. And, and he said, but she's, she's married, right? And he's like, no, she's not. And that's just kind of how it started. So that's yeah. so awesome. So awesome. So he started off on a good page reading your book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and how exactly a good page. Exactly. <laughs> that was a good one, babe. Good yeah. job, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, we got married in the end of September. 
it's been interesting to me because so we've connected just very little on social media since since I left group. Right. And I feel like I'm a pretty intuitive person. And watching you throughout the years and just like with your first, well, your second marriage, mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, like worrying for you. Oh, thank you. And I don't know why, but I, and I had no reason to, like none, but just feeling like, oh, I just hope everything's okay. And then watching you go into the second one, it's like pure it. joy. Yeah. <laughs> you can feel it. There's a, there's a huge difference. There for is. Sure. And I just am so happy for you. Oh, thank so you happy. so much. It just, yeah. It is amazing. And especially when you know somebody from so long ago. I mean, when you guys were getting married, that gave me hope, even though I thought my marriage was going to make it at that yeah. point, it still gave me hope that there were good things to come after something hard. Yes. And I think that's the thing too, is just because our story ended one way, your story went one way, mm-hmm. doesn't mean there isn't hope for people in oh, yeah. a totally different I way. It, for sure. Yes, but it provides that hope in so many ways. Like people are like, well, your story isn't the same. And I'm like, that doesn't matter. There's still that hope there that you can find because it's the hope of healing. Mm-hmm. It's not just the hope of your marriage working out. It's not just the hope of whatever. It's the hope of healing and finding that light of yourself again. Yeah. And I think divorce is scary for people. And so they tend to want to just stay. And it's great if if their marriage works and both people choose. And I know several people that the Mm -hmm. addict in the relationship did choose into recovery and they are healing and their marriage is awesome and stronger than it's ever been. Yeah. But when someone stays just for the fact of staying married because they don't want to go through divorce, because divorce is so taboo or awful, it has a stigma. They're, they're worried about that. They choose to stay, but they're just staying in so much pain and their children are staying in so much pain. Mm-hmm. And that, I don't know, what I've learned is that divorce honestly is okay. It actually is. It's part of the journey for so it many is, and right. it is part yeah. of the plan. It's okay. It's not that all marriages are supposed to stay. Absolutely, 100% not true. And it is, you know, Jessica and I have both said that we don't consider our marriage a failure. Right. It served us mm-hmm. so well in so many ways and we grew from it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you just brought up a great point too that I want to talk about real quick. You brought up your kids mm-hmm. and like kids in the situation. And I feel like a lot of people say, well, I need to stay for my kids. Yeah. And I like cringe a little when people say that. I'm like, there are situations where maybe that's true. But if your kids aren't seeing you heal, then what example are we showing them? Right. And how like how have your kids been – through all, through all of, of that. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you an experience. So my daughter uh, found my workbook from my counseling. It was like mm-hmm. healing heartbreak, being the spouse of an addict, something like that is on the front of it. And she saw my workbook. It was in the car and I saw that she saw it. So I'm like, oh my gosh, okay, here we go. Right. And I'm tr- I don't remember for sure how old she was, but she was a teenager. But so I go in her room and she's in her closet and I'm like, hey. And she's like, just a minute, I'm in my closet saying a prayer. I'm Aww. like, ah, right? So she knows I do that. But so she comes out and she said, mom, mom, I was praying. And I was like, why did I have to find this? Why did I have to know about this? I should not have had to know about this. <laughs> and she said, and I got the answer. She said, because all this time I thought I was the problem. I thought, oh. why is he not connecting to me? Referring to her father, mm-hmm, your husband. Because mm-hmm. he's very oh. present, very 24-7, like totally in their lives. But she, energy-wise, she could feel that there was a disconnect between the two of them. And she thought it was her. Wow. And she said, I now know it's not me. 
So we do our kids a disservice sometimes. We think we mean well. We think we're doing such good things for them by protecting them from the truth. But their body already knows. Their body yeah. feels weird stuff. And when you say, when they say, what's wrong or what's going on? And you say, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. Everything's fine. Yep. They know they, something is. They do. And they're going to pinpoint it somewhere else. Yes. And they're they're not learning to trust their own body. Their body's telling them something isn't their right here. Yeah. What is this? And so you're not showing them how to listen to their gut instinct and to be able to see those things for what they are. So it's painful. Of course it is. And you want your marriage to stay together for your kids. But if it's not and you don't show any love and you hate each other and there's resentment and bitterness and you can't get out of bed in the morning and everything is so miserable, you're not showing them what love is. You're not showing what a committed relationship is. You're not showing them what communication looks like. And they now have to go through later, do their own work because they're going to end up looking for those same relationships. I love what you're saying about the difference between setting a realistic expectation for our kids of what life is like, what relationships are like, the good and the bad, the struggles, the challenges, the triumphs, versus sheltering them from those things mm -hmm. and thinking, no, I don't want my kids to know about the problems in our relationship. Right. I don't want my kids to know about the, the huge in internal struggles yeah. I have, about right. the mental health issues I've dealt with, or whatever it might be. But we do them a disservice mm -hmm. by painting a picture for them that life is all happy and rainbow and glitter because it's not. No, it's not. All of us and have our struggles. It. They and feel it anyway. And they then do. they can't live up to what their parents are. My parents are perfect and yes. I have yes. this mental, emotional problems and I can't tell them because they won't understand. And yep. I don't, yeah, and yeah. I, you know, I don't want Penny to grow up thinking mm -mm. that, you know, she's going, our kids are going to have challenges. Of course. Some similar to ours, some different, but how devastating would it be for a kid to grow up and suddenly and get into a relationship and experience relation typical normal relationship problems and compare that to my parents never had these problems they right. never argued they right. never had any issues they got along great yeah stating so. the truth in front of them is yes. what's important so mm -hmm. when when my husband decided well i served papers to him so i did choose divorce but he left without saying goodbye to them so they came home he was gone oh. and so i took that i mean obviously we talked a lot but i told them i said look the reality is you are going to be angry and have all these feelings and you can use this and you can totally rebel and go off whatever path you want and you can self-destruct to punish him, to punish me, to do whatever you need to do. But in the end, you're only hurting yourself. It's your life and your future. So yeah. you can do that if you choose. You can go that route and be so angry or you can try to stick on your path. We'll do the counseling. We'll talk about stuff. We'll cry together. We'll do it all so that you can find your way. But then that gave them that, what it looks like, because who doesn't want to say, oh my gosh, yeah. here I am this old. You know, my oldest was 18. He was, he had just left serving a mission. So they're older at this point. Of course, they could be just angry and bitter and just go off the deep end and ruin their lives. I'm seeing some major parallels between what you were teaching them mm -hmm. versus what you kind of had to teach yourself or be taught in group. Right. Of, I am very negatively affected by someone else's decisions right now, yep. but I am the only one that can take steps and do the work and heal from it. Right. Or I can choose not to and be a mess. Right. <laughs> and in that process, because they chose to do their own stuff and see it clearly, they could have the feelings they had, but they could also develop empathy and love for their dad. Yeah. Which they still have now. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. At what point would you recommend somebody 
taking that first step to go into the 12 step program? Well, if I would have known about it earlier than I did, that would be great. I think anytime pornography is shows to be an issue and that somebody's hiding something and, and you keep finding it, then to me, that's the perfect time to start or at least counseling something. You got to do something. 12 step for me was not enough. I definitely needed counseling so that I could learn how to switch the behaviors and see things clear. So for me, I needed both. That's great. Was there a particular part of those 12 steps or of the healing process in general that you really like, is there a favorite part of the healing process? That's a silly way to word that. (laughs) Right. Any pivotal points in the healing process that you think are worth mentioning? Um, I think for me, healing, just knowing that I wasn't alone, that was like, I thought I was alone. I thought I was the only one that this was happening to. There is no way other people's spouses are doing this. And so to learn and find so many, we're talking thousands of women that I've now been introduced to going through the same thing and men too, you know, but in my case, women, it was like, wow, like we are not alone. And almost like the fight inside of me grew to a different kind of a fight. It wasn't a fight against a person. It wasn't, we hate all these things. We hate all these people. It was more about love and saving yourself, saving your family in a way that's healthy, obviously. And that you had all of this support behind you. So you weren't doing it alone. So how do you draw the line? Because looking at the views from like being a member of the church my whole life, like we're taught serve others, serve others, serve others. Mm-hmm. Like at what point did you learn like, whoa, wait a second, I got to serve. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to serve others, but first I got to serve myself. Like, right, it took and, a long and, time. And that's a like within an elders quorum meeting, I've had this topic be brought up of, mm-hmm. guys, we have to love ourselves. Yeah. And then some of the older guys look at me like, ah, come on, we got to serve others yeah. first. Loving like, yourself is parsity. Yeah. That's what, that's what, I, it is. That's what I felt like yeah. when I brought that up. That's what I felt like. I mean, this guy who I can picture vividly in my head, he was 93 years old. He's like, no, I never, I never focus on myself. It's always my wife and others. But like, I think that there needs to be some type of movement or permission given mm-hmm. that we do have to love ourselves first. Well, for sure. And, how can we, I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts on like getting that mentality? Right. Well, for sure, just to address the whole men, you know, thing and not able to have emotions, right? Boys are taught early, toughen up, shake it off, don't cry, you're okay. They're these harmful things that yep. from the time they're little. So they suppress and they just keep pushing down, pushing down, mm-hmm. pushing down. So then when they grow up and women are like, why are you not connective? Why are you not connecting with me? Why are we not, you know, why are you distant? Or why are you running away? Why can't you ever talk about your feelings? Why, yeah, what are your feelings? And, and there's there's no words there. And so these older gentlemen that you're talking about, they were brought up, you know, for sure in that, right? They're going to yeah. get hit again if they cry. So, so just teaching that, right? Continuing to do it. Talk about emotions and feelings and you've got to feel. You have to feel. Otherwise, you're not even connected to your own self. You don't even get to find out who you truly are if you're not going to connect with yourself. But they've pushed down a lot of stuff for so long that when they do start, if they start to listen to their own feelings or learn how to feel emotions, they're going to have a lot of work to do and they're going to feel a lot of past things that weren't dealt with, you know, so at least for the men. There was a a quote that was given to me a couple years ago that, and I don't remember who said it, but they said 
stop thinking and start feeling. Yeah. And that has stuck with me of, okay, how can I really stop thinking that I'm a tough guy? Because I am a tough guy, but I need to start feeling too. Right. Right. You got to let know? some tears shed, right? Yeah. I'm a tough guy with feelings. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I can be on a t-shirt too. Yeah. Steve's coming up with all sorts of t-shirt uh-huh. ideas today. <laughs> well, is it the second commandment to love the neighbor as thyself? Yes. Isn't that oh, within right. that? Yeah. Shouldn't we take that to realize we have to love ourselves mm-hmm. first? First. And then we love yeah. others. And to go back, like as far as for women are concerned, it's about boundaries again, having boundaries for yes. yourself. So when somebody, you know, wants me to do something for them and I already know, everything in my body is like, don't even don't accept that. Do Absolutely that. not. You're already a nutcase right now. Like you're already <laughs> not. Exactly. Like you are a crazy person. I already now know I can, oh, I'm sorry. That's not actually not going to work for me. And they're surprised sometimes. They're, it's yes. a new thing for people when you say, oh, yes. no, actually, that's not going to work. And they're like, wait, what? Well, I was just going to – I w- yeah, I know. But but that's not going to be okay for it. me. Yes. Yeah, I can't yes. do that right now. And it, choosing yourself does help you serve other people even better yeah. for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing oh, this I'm so today. glad you guys came over. It's so, so fun to reconnect with you and to hear your story. And just again, it's – And to learn from you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So awesome. So again, what's the name of your book? It's called Cutting Ties, and you it's you can go to the website, CuttingTies.com or Amazon. Or, so why, mm-hmm. why the title Cutting Ties? Yeah, the first chapter talks about that, and the picture of the book is an actual real photograph of real ties that I actually cut. So the story is in that first chapter of how that happened. Right. It was my rock bottom, basically. Go check it out. Uh-huh. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, thank you so much. It's great being here with you. Thanks, you guys. It was. Thanks, Russell. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Husband-in-Law. All right, now we have a challenge for you. We challenge you to go give someone a huge hug or send a simple gratitude note who needs to receive it specifically from you. If you've enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed yet, please be sure to do so now. Also, don't forget to give us a review. We read every single one of them. Until next time, keep striving to make your relationship the best it can possibly be.